Thus far, the reading of God's Word. I invite you this evening to take your copy of the Holy Scriptures and turn with me to 2 Timothy, chapter 1. And I would direct your attention to verses 13 and 14. So 2 Timothy 1, our text is verses 13 and 14. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. The truth of Holy Scripture is a glorious treasure, a treasure of incomparable value. Treasures of this world can perish, and many of them do. But this, this word, this spiritual gold that God has given to us endures, has endured, and will endure throughout all ages. It has power unlike any other power of life that can be given to those who are dead, bringing them uh, into a saving interest of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has the power to change countries and continents. It is truly of great value. And what people do with treasures of this, of this world, what do they do? Well, they protect them. Why? Because they value them. And because of the value, they take great pains to ensure that it's not lost or stolen or otherwise uh, brought to demise. And so, so it is for the Christian when it comes to the truth of Holy Scripture. We look upon this spiritual gold as something that must be kept, something that must be preserved. We have an attachment to it. We have an attachment in the first place, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, his person. We are brought into union with him and thereby have an attachment to the whole of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have, as a consequence, attachment to one another. We love the brethren and must do so, and so we're united to them. But we also have an attachment to the truth, to the Bible, to the Word of God. And it is an attachment that cannot be in any way loosened. So here's the Apostle Paul, Paul the aged, Paul at the culmination and end of his earthly race. And writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he thinks about what things he should convey to his spiritual son, to his young apprentice in the faith, to this young minister who would labor on after Paul uh, reaches the end. And so he's within perhaps a couple weeks, it would seem, uh, from leaving this world. And when you come to the text in light of that background, it becomes very notable what, what things he does say and what exhortations he does give to young Timothy. And among them is the one that we have in front of us this evening, this call uh, to hold fast, to hold fast the truth, the form of sound words. We are, after all, a people of the book. And we must remain a people of the book all our days. So we'll note three things this evening as we consider together uh, these 
two verses. First of all, we have the truth. We have the truth at present uh, in our possession. It speaks here of the form of sound words and the good thing which has been committed unto us. It's speaking of the biblical apostolic doctrine and faith that is given in the Holy Scriptures, both a form of sound words and that good thing, a precious deposit that has been committed to us. Verse 13, it says, uh, the form of sound words, the, the word sound is used in a way that we still use it. It's, it's referring to healthy, right? So we speak of someone who is of sound health or in the, who has a sound mind, right? We're speaking of, of that which is, is, is healthy. It's the same word that's used uh, for those that Jesus healed uh, in, in the Gospels. And so those who are diseased or frail or sick, whatever, are made healthy, are made whole, are made sound. And we're told that it's given to us in a form or a pattern, if you will, a standard. That the Bible is being described as a standard, as a rule, as a guide, as an example of, of what the Lord's will is. Right? It's communicating to us in inspired, infallible, and errant words uh, the truth as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the form or pattern of sound words. And so here is Timothy. He's given a, a clear and definable uh, system of truth, which he has in the inspired scriptures. And Paul is saying, you must keep this. In Jude 3, uh, we're told that we're to contend earnestly for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Right there, the faith, sometimes we think of faith in terms of the virtue where we exercise faith, we have faith in Christ and so on. Other times, faith is referring to something external or objective to us. There, it's referring to apostolic doctrine. It's referring to the truth of, of God's word. We're to contend earnestly for that faith, for that truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that, that of course, includes everything. Genesis 1.1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22, as Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he had taught them the whole counsel of God. Uh, we don't come to select portions that we find especially poignant or precious to us, but that the whole of God's word is to be read, studied, prayed over, preached, communicated to us, and held fast to the whole counsel we're told that it's a, a precious deposit, that good thing which was committed unto thee. Right here you have something beautiful, something valuable, something noble. It is a precious treasure that has been deposited within the bosom of the church for safekeeping. God has given uh, to his church in all ages the truth of his own word. And we're to view it accordingly. We're to view it as put in trust, that, that it is put in trust to us, that it is something that we have responsibility to love and to keep. You'll notice if you look over a page, First Timothy 6, 
And the end there in verse 20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. And so it is a precious deposit. We're to think of it this way. The Bible, uh, the Bible to us is, is not merely a treasure in, in the equivalent way that we would think of gold and silver and precious stones and, and other things. It's more than that, but it's never less than that. Indeed, David means it when he says in Psalm 19 that it is more precious, that his word is more precious than gold, silver, and precious stones. He means it with all of his heart. And we're to approach it that way. We're to think of it that way. People think of truth as, and the truth of, of God's word as something intangible, as something even ethereal at times. Well, yes, we have the truth. And of course, the truth is, is important and so on. But far too few view it as something that must absolutely be kept, valued, that we cannot be without it. We cannot lose it. We cannot allow any portion of it to slip through uh, our fingers, to be stolen from us. We are in possession of it, and we're, we're going to give an account on the last day. You and I both will give an account for what we've done with God's book, what we've done with all of the truths in Holy Scripture. Did we dismiss them as secondary, as inconsequential? Were there some that we neglected and did not find ourselves especially attracted to? Did we roll over when, when people pushed uh, against the truth? Did we fail to, to pour uh, our souls uh, over the word of God and to lay it up within our own hearts and our own minds? We will stand before the judgment seat and the Lord will say, what have you done with my truth? the truths of, of my holy word. And we need to think accordingly. We believe, as our Reformed Father said, in sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone, and tota scriptura, all of scripture, all of scripture and scripture alone. It's the Bible that we are seeking to hold fast to, not the traditions of men, even highly esteemed men, not to the strength of intellect, not to the pleasures of this, this passing world or to pragmatic concerns, thinking to ourselves that, well, what really matters is what we can do with something, right? That's one of the, the great blind spots of this technological age. Everything is a technique and truth is not viewed in its own right as something that's indispensable, but only as a tool to something else that meets some pragmatic need. No, we hold to the whole Bible and to only the Bible. It's not what this pastor or any other pastor says. It's what the Bible says. Faithful ministers come to proclaim what the Bible says. But it is what the Bible says that we are so keen to know and love and have. We have confessions of faith. We have our Westminster Confession of Faith. It is a fallible expression of infallible truth. The Westminster Confession and Catechisms, their beauty is the fact that they seek with excruciating precision 
to articulate what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. And so it is a declaration. Here is what we uh, attest to as, as the teachings of the doctrines of, of God's, God's word. And we're grateful for that. But in all of our catechetical memory work, in all of our study of the confession, which we can't do too much, we need to be sure that we have our roots put even deeper into the rich soil of Scripture itself. We need to be able to articulate and when called upon to defend those doctrines from the text of Scripture itself, to be able to say, thus saith the Lord. It is a treasure. It's through it that we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. As you see later on in this book, it is this Bible that gives us, furnishes us with all that we need for life and godliness. And so we begin by recognizing we have it. Uh, we're not those who are, are groping about in the dark in some foreign country with cut off from access to the light of God's word. No, it has been placed into our hands. Uh, we begin with it. You know, for some of us, we grew up in Christian homes where we had it and were taught it. But all of us here this evening find us ourselves in the possession of the truth of God's word. So what do we do with this truth? Well, that brings us secondly to the fact that we are to hold fast. We are to hold fast this treasure. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. And faith and love which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. We're to preserve it. Right? That's the language, hold fast, and then in verse 14, keep. To hold fast is to retain, is to preserve this thing. We noted a moment ago that language of Jude where we're contending earnestly for it. Right? We're, we're fighting in order to have it, to keep it, to preserve it. In verse 14, he says, keep, which is to guard it. You know, that which is committed unto thee, Guard by the Holy Ghost, literally, so as not to be damaged. So it's not as if we're just saying, well, we don't want the Old Testament to be, you know, lost or taken away and we need to preserve the New Testament. We're not saying that. We're saying any portion of the scripture, any truth that's given to us in this book is not to be lost or damaged. The minutia really Biblically speaking, there is no minutia, is there? We, we might think of them, and, and, and it can be appropriate to think of, of smaller, more detailed truths in contrast to larger, more overarching truths. That's fair enough. But every bit of this, every thread of the fabric of God's truth is to be, is to be preserved. Right? That's what it means to have it committed, to keep that which is committed to, to our trust. I mean, kings have palaces, and with palaces come armies and those who guard them. We who aren't kings have possessions, and we take pains as well to protect them from thieves. We're traveling through the airport. We secure our belongings. We, in our homes, we secure the things that uh, are of greater value to us, and so on. 
Well, there is a real threat. This isn't hypothetical. The Apostle Paul isn't, after all of his years of experience, saying to Timothy, well, you know, it might be the case that someday there's risk of some of the truth that you've been given being lost or damaged. No, he's saying there's a real threat. And it's a perpetual, a perennial threat. The threat of corrupting the gospel. And it comes by way of perhaps saying one thing, which is fine, but refusing to say another thing, which is obligatory, equally important for truth, emphasizing one thing and downplaying another. It's possible, and we've seen it throughout the history, annals of history, for the church to be robbed of this priceless treasure. And it never comes, of course, with a big billboard in front of it. It never comes with, you know, trumpet blasts and announcements that, you know, the the day has arrived where certain doctrines of God's word are going to be uh, confiscated. It always comes in the back door. It always comes subtly. I mean, you you look at what was, was happening here in verse 15. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Right, he's saying this isn't hypothetical. Or in chapter 4, chapter four, verse 14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Verse 16, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their, their charge. You go later on and read the, the, the letters to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. And you can see there false teachers that have come in. Paul, just as Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that from among themselves wolves would come in. You see it in living color in Revelation 2 and 3 and the errors that had come into the church and the, the fact that they had lost their grip on certain truths. The fact is that there is a constant drift toward error. Left alone, there's a constant drift toward error. We're not, we're not somehow static. We don't just stay uh, neutral. And because of that constant pull, the church cannot give in. The church must remain vigilant. The people of God in the pew must do so. You know, people... I mean, you see it throughout history. I mean, if you study church history, as some of you have, the idea of entertaining new ideas. And everything seems so benign and, you know, it's fresh. And there's, there's something attractive about it and, and, and new light that seems to be appearing and so on and so forth. And people are lulled to sleep by it. And what's given with one hand is taken, other truth is taken away with the other hand. There's this constant pull. And so he's saying you have to hold fast. You have to hold fast as just like someone who comes and tries to rip something out of your hand. You clench it till your knuckles are white. You dig in your heels. You lean your weight. You, you pull with, with all the muscle you can muster. That's the picture. We're to hold fast to the truth in that way to guard it against the constant threats of it being stolen. Now, difficult times, especially. 
create temptations, when there are a variety of different pressures, there's a lot of confusion that, that difficult times can bring. A lot of dust is thrown up in, into the air. And people begin to, to trim the edges as a consequence of that. You'll notice in chapter 3, verse 1, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Go down to verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing whom thou hast learned them, and so on. Men will resist the truth. Verse 8 tells us that, right? You have Jannes and Jambres. This is chapter 3. So do these also resist the truth. Or you go back to chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4. For the time will come uh, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So there's nothing theoretical here in what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's not just saying, well, it's a good idea to think about these things. He's saying, no, right here in this present moment, the time that he was writing, we're looking into the, the face of, of significant threats, and that continues to the present day. Confusion rather than clarity begins to gain the upper hand. We're not to get to the point where we're ever embarrassed of the truth. That's a temptation. You know, it's not, it's not just our contemporary society that says, well, this is stodgy and, you know, old fogies and Neanderthals and whatever else believe this stuff. We live in a new era where, you know, with rockets and supercomputers and so on and so forth. That same line has been repeated over and over ad nauseum. So you can drop yourself into any century over the last 20, and you'll find the same sort of tactic coming forth. I mean, here in chapter 1, notice in verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with this whole holy calling. Paul's already having to say, don't be embarrassed about the testimony, the truth that the Lord has, has given to us. Verse 12, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. No, instead, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to fight ferociously for the truth. Chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Paul is saying, you keep this good thing that has been committed to your trust. You hold fast this form of sound words. He's at the end of his race, and he's saying, I have fought for it, and I have kept it. I haven't let, I haven't let loose I have not given up what the Lord has, has given to me. Well, the only way for us to do that is study, study, study. 
You'll never be able to do it with a cursory reading of the Bible, reading your few verses and then carrying on in one ear and out the other. It means being steeped in the book. It means reading reflectively, slowly. It means meditating. It means memorizing. It means pushing yourself to read those portions that are so often neglected. It means getting clarity with the help of the Holy Spirit to understand what the Bible is teaching, all the doctrines that are there, and all of the points with regards to what we're to do in terms of of practice, all the truths that are contained there. We're to look beyond just the nice language that people so often repeat to the substance underneath it. We have to be those who know our Bibles. How can you keep the truth if you're not acquainted with it? And this is one of the reasons that it is helpful, for example, for every one of our children to know the catechism inside and out. Right? They have a miniature systematic theology, a nice concise and precise summary of the doctrines of Scripture embedded in their brains. And we pray with the help of the Spirit will be embedded in their hearts as well. But we need to go beyond that. I mean, that's, I think, in many ways indispensable uh, to our growth. But we need to go beyond that. We need to know when, when we're challenged And someone says, well, do we really need to hold to original sin? Do we really need to believe in the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity? And that all are are conceived and born in guilt. Is that really important? Can we be a Christian and and dispose of that? Where do you go to say, no, that's, we're keeping that. There's no way we're going to hold fast to that. That's indispensable to the whole system of truth and to the gospel itself and understanding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished in his atonement and so on and so forth. We need to know where to go in our Bibles to be able to say, no, thus saith the Lord. And that ends the story. Thus saith the Lord. Nothing else matters. All the protests to the contrary. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them, right? There's this continuing in the truth. So it's saturation, having it, holding it, defending it, guarding it, keeping it, and ourselves continuing in it. The things we've heard, the things we've been taught from the Bible, the things we know from Scripture, we're to continue in that. We're not to take a right hand or a left hand or an about face. But we're to press on in that same truth. So this is a challenge to you children especially. That as you grow into adolescence and your teens and into your young adulthood and then beyond into your 20s and 30s and, and so forth, you are to continue in the truth that's been committed to you. The exhortation to Timothy is an exhortation by God to you that you are to stand in it, you're to walk in it, you're to live in it, you're to live out of it, you're to believe it, you're to love it, you're to teach and cultivate and propagate that truth. You must continue in it, children, so that when pastors long gone, dead in the grave, and many of the others here, you will still be found continuing in the truth. Some of you will grow up 
and you'll become deacons and elders and ministers and missionaries, those of you who are boys. You're to continue in these truths. Right? I've told you before and I'll tell you again. We have the landscape of our nation is dotted with liberal churches, churches that have departed from the word of God and the gospel. Every single instance of that can be traced back to men who failed to keep their vows. Office bearers who came into office swore themselves in the all-seeing presence of the all-seeing God. And who capitulated, abandoned, trimmed, walked away from truths that they had promised to uphold. Little boys, when you grow up by God's grace, the Lord calls you to such things. You continue in that truth all your days so that you can say at the end, as Paul did, I have kept the faith. I have contended earnestly for it. I've kept that which has been committed to me. Well, you say, Pastor, who's sufficient for these things? Who in the world is sufficient for these things? This is, this is, this is an, an enormous responsibility that's been given to us. The Lord, we have this treasure. We're told to hold fast this treasure. But look at us. Who's sufficient? The answer is easy. No one. Not I nor you. None of us are sufficient for such things. And so thirdly, we have help. Help in holding fast this truth. There's an encouragement given to us. There is a reassurance given to us. There is no way, we, we can't hope to guard it by ourselves. Yes, it's true that the, the truth has been committed to our hands. That's true. We're not dialing that back at all. But our hands are frail and our hands are, are, are feeble. But God has not taken his hands off. God is the final keeper. He is the guardian, the preserver of his truth. So that when, when Hermogenes and Diotrephes and all of these others, Demas, turn from the truth. The Lord preserves it. The Lord's going to preserve his truth with or without us. It will endure. Without us, it'll be to our own peril. But he is the one who guarantees that the gospel and the whole counsel of God will be preserved. So you look at the, the text. And at the end of verse 12, of course, you have that language. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him uh, against that day. You who are keeping this treasure are yourselves kept by God himself. The Lord is keeping his believing people. He says, I know him. Right? He's saying, I know whom I have believed. I know the all-powerful keeper of Israel. God's people are kept by the power of God. But then in verse 14, you'll notice that he says, That good thing which thou hast committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. 
So it's not just the Lord out there who, who is in heaven and who's upholding and sustaining us, but it is also the Holy Spirit who indwells his people. The Holy Spirit who inspired this book. The Holy Spirit who illuminates the minds of his God's elect to see the truth and to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That same Spirit who's inspired the Scripture is the Spirit who is indwelling his people. And so it is the Spirit who enables us. It is dependence upon him. We are native-born fools. But the Lord is able, and so we come in acute dependence upon him, asking that just as he keeps us, so he would also enable us to keep the truth. It's the Spirit with the Word that provides fidelity. The one who is the Spirit of truth. He's the one who strengthens our grip on that truth. He's the one who enables us to see the difference between truth and error. He's the one who leads us through his word to understand, love, believe, obey, and preserve his word. That's what Paul was saying, wasn't he, in chapter 4? He says, the Lord stood with him and strengthened him, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Paul's saying it was all the Lord. It's all the Lord. It's his glory. It's his power. He's the one who strengthens our grip. So we need, we need a self-conscious attachment to the truth, but we also need a self-conscious attachment and dependence upon God in keeping that truth. We need to ask him. We need to seek his grace. We need to depend upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to walk in the light. And so you'll notice that being enabled to guard the truth by the Spirit also impacts how we guard it. If you go back to verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Hold fast in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is talking about how we hold fast in faith and love. These are both attitudes and actions, things that are displayed, the fruit of faith and the fruit of love that are found in Christ. These are essential to actually preserving apostolic doctrine. We need faith and love. They're the sphere, if you will, or the atmosphere in which truth is preserved. As we are walking in faith, walking in love, that is an atmosphere in which the preservation of truth is cultivated. Faith is somewhat obvious, isn't it? We keep the standard, this, this form or pattern of sound words, we, we keep it while trusting in God, by believing the truth, not, not questioning, not, not uh, redefining it, but, but actually believing it and, and believing the Lord whose voice is heard in the Holy Scriptures. 
but love too. We keep the standard, we keep this form of sound words by and while living a life of love. Ultimately, this is very personal because God himself is truth. The revelation of himself is in this word. It is love for the Lord that is the fuel for keeping the truth. It's love for the Lord. It's love for the Lord Jesus Christ himself who says, I am the way, the truth, and, and the life. And so that love that is cultivated in communion and fellowship with him, beholding him, seeing him, receiving from him, living upon him, drawing near to him, seeking to please him. It's our love for the Lord that stands behind all these things. You can think of people wrongly, but people do think of truth in the abstract. Well, we have these, these kind of intellectual concepts. We have the, these truths. Truth is extremely personal. We're speaking about the Lord himself. We're speaking about the voice of the Lord. We're speaking about the revelation of the Lord himself. And so what, ne what we need is growing in faith, and we need to be growing in love for Christ himself. Then we're able to say, as I've said before, when people demand of us, to deny truths, suppress truths, walk away from truths, neglect truths, to give up truths, we're able to say to them, sorry, it's not mine to give. It makes it so easy, doesn't it? It makes it easy in terms of the disposition and framework of our souls. When someone tells us to give up a truth, we can say in all honesty, because this is how we think, it's not mine to give. I can't give you somebody else's house. This truth belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not mine to give. And so the answer is no, a thousand times no. We won't give up his truth. It also affects how we interface with others, doesn't it, in, in contending for this truth. Walking by faith, and the cultivation of love are indispensable in our interface with others. So that our desire, of course, is for the whole world to be one to the Lord's truth. And it's love for their souls, not winning an argument, not browbeating them to the ground over errors that they hold or any other such thing. There's a desire to love their soul and a desire to see them one to, to that truth. So our attitude is impacted. The last thing in the world that we should ever see, the thing that we should desire earnestly to avoid is pride, a contentious spirit, an abrasive disposition. These things are incompatible with the truth we claim to defend. The truth melts us. It humbles us. We don't live above the truth and wield the truth as if we were the ones who, who controlled it. We live under the truth, in submission to the truth. It is humility that causes us 
to refuse to forsake it. Pride is incompatible with that. It is the truth, the truth as it is in Jesus. Nations, civilizations, philosophical schools of thought, theological trends, and many other such things have embarked in a contest to overthrow the truth. And they have all been vanquished in the process so that the dustbin of history is filled to the brim and littered with both civilizations and ideologies that have been wrecked on the rock of the truth of God's word. And in contrast to all of that flux and instability, here is the kingdom of God. Here is the reign of truth, and it endures, undented, unbroken, unbeaten. And so it will continue to the very end of the age. Until the last soul is born, and the Lord Jesus Christ cracks the heavens wide open in his second coming, this truth shall endure. And so for we who are poor, helpless, and humble sinners, seeking salvation by grace in Jesus Christ, we are to cast our anchor deep within it, deep within the pale of God's word, to be absolutely anchored in this word, built upon the bedrock of this word. And by the grace of God, if we are, we will not be shaken, nor will we be shattered, come what may. Continuing in the truth of the Lord, we must hold fast. When we who are here are gone, we pray God that the generations which are rising will hold fast the form of sound words. I'll give you a quote in conclusion lifted from the annals of history, a prayer. Our Father in heaven, give us the long view of our work and our world. Help us to see that it is better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. May God enable us to do so. Let's stand together for prayer. O oh Lord God in heaven, the one who is veracity in thy being, who is the truth, and who in thy condescending mercies has revealed thy mind and will to us in the Holy Scriptures. O oh Lord, we take it so often for granted. We have such extensive access to it. But deliver us from that. Grant, O oh Lord, that we would feel the tug, the pull that is constantly on us to take the truth from us. Give us grace by the power of the Holy Spirit alone 
that we would be endued with the ability to hold fast the form of sound words, to keep that good thing which has been committed unto our trust. Bless these precious children. O oh Lord, we know not what awaits them, but thou dost. And we pray, give, that they would continue in this truth. Indeed, that they would wax valiant in it, that they would be mighty warriors who fight the good fight, who keep the faith, and who spend their strength in life out of love for the Redeemer to uphold his banner. Hear our cries, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.